Hello and welcome along to the RTE Rugby Podcast. Just four more weekends of rugby to go until we hit the end of this season. Thankfully, though, it's four huge weekends ahead. We have loads to get through today with Bernard Jackman and Eddie O'Sullivan. We'll be looking back at Leinster's Heineken Champions Cup semi-final win against Toulouse, previewing this weekend's BKT United Rugby Championship quarterfinals. First, though, we're going to talk about the Women's Six Nations. Um, a disastrous campaign, pretty much, for Ireland. Uh, ended on Saturday evening, beaten 36-10 by Scotland in Edinburgh. A first wooden spoon since 2004. And now it seems things really just getting worse. A change of co- head coach, Greg McWilliams, will be leaving. No official confirmation at the time of recording right now here on Wednesday morning. But the IRFU said yesterday they're in discussions with him. Um, But pretty much it does seem to be a done deal. And Eddie, just to, to start with you. Um, a change of head coach at this stage of the cycle Ireland are on after the results they've had. I I don't know about you. For me, it kind of just seems like it's setting Ireland only a little bit further back down the road. Yeah, it's not ideal. Um, this is their women's third head coach in all nine years. I mean, it started with Tom Tierney's back in 2014. Uh, he left in 17. Then Adam Grigg came in 17 to 21. They missed the World Cup qualifier. He left. Uh, and now Greg is coming in 2021 and 23. It looks like he's gone, you know. So it's a revolving door, which has its problems. You know, any coach just taking over a program, uh, they need to kind of bid in, get their philosophy across, build their squad. Like there's so many dimensions to trying to, as a head coach, trying to build a program. And, and, um, when you have that much turnover, um, like at the end of each crisis, somebody leaves, and there's been crises in, in women's rugby in Ireland for different reasons, and rightly so. Um, it doesn't help the program. It doesn't stabilize it. So, like, if you're trying to develop uh, any sort of a sports program, and it, it's the stability around the person running it to get it done, um, and not saying coaches shouldn't. Board. But what it does is when a coach leaves, it does destabilize the environment for another period of time. Because whoever comes in now after Greg has got to set out his stall, get his ducks in a row, start imposing his philosophy. You know, it's just starting all over again, you know. Now, I suppose where they are at the moment, they're at a pretty low nadir, you know. So, like, you could say that it's all, it's the only way is up now, but it's still. It still has to start. It's a start again. It's a reboot again. And I think that's, that doesn't make it any easier, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's just another problem now that has to be fixed along the road to getting the women's program where they need to be, you know? Yeah, and that's the really frustrating thing, Birch, is that next year we're going to be into, okay, it's a fresh start. It's year one all over again. I mean, the first year of Greg McWilliams was meant to be the fresh start in year one. And then these new contracts came in and that meant that this year was year one and we're going to be into it all over again next season. But the bigger question then is, who wants the job? Like this this feels now like it's going to be a pretty tough sell for the IRFU to to bring in a decent replacement or a decent new coach. Yeah, look, it's not a very attractive role, to be honest, given all the toxicity that's around it. Um, and obviously then you look at... Results and performances, obviously, our worst Six Nations, I think, in in uh, in in twenty year, twenty odd years, um, in terms of results. The only thing I would say is that you know, by the nature of them qualifying for this WX three competition, 
the fixtures that they would have in, in October, November in Hong Kong, I think is where it's going to be played, would be very favourable. So you probably would start off on a on a bit of a winning streak. And then next year, Six Nations, you know, you play Italy, Scotland and Wales at home. Um, so in theory, you might get a bit of a better start. But, you know, obviously... Um, it's still not attractive uh position, and it'd be very interesting how they go about trying to recruit. You know, we see John Mitchell apparently going to to England. Um, but he's obviously a very high profile coach from the men's game. Um, then maybe there if you will go down a different route and look to to bring someone who's already deeply ingrained in the in the women's game in Ireland or or elsewhere. I I, I don't know what um. I don't know what the situation is, and I suppose it's it's all speculation. But um, until it's we get an official announcement, but it does seem Greg's time is over. I think, I think it's pretty hard harsh on him because if you look at he did go down the inexperienced route, trying to blood new players, trying to bring new players through, trying to find new talents. And when you go down that route and you're as kind of radical as he was, you probably do need an understanding from above that. There's going to be pain in that. Um, but I thought your article, your article on the on the RT website, you know, uh, puts it there in black and white. The, the biggest issue we have is is a lack of uh, talent uh, uh, in depth, um, and even not, not just depth. I mean, the, the players who are playing for Ireland at the moment are are struggling in comparison to their counterparts, you know, in Scotland, Wales, Italy, and uh, England, France. So. Um, but obviously then it's the depth to that the player, um, the squad that he can pick from, um, and making the game more attractive. You know, um, there's a there's a big issue with with getting. We haven't been able to get numbers up, and whether that's because, you know, what the other offerings are so strong. Obviously, the soccer team now are are, are successful in a in a very high profile way. Um, it's not played in the private schools in any way near the level that hockey or, or basketball is, which is obviously where most of the men come from. And that talent pool, um, women's GA is, is, is very uh, popular and, and, and elite. Um, the sevens, obviously, you know, that's, they, they've taken some of the best athletes and um, they're on kind of their own program. So it's a, it's a very, very tricky one. And, and unfortunately there's no quick fix. Um, I think there are, if you're thrown, Spending over five million on us, or, or um, five and a half million, five and a half million a year, which is quite a significant investment. Um, so from that point of view, I don't think you can call him out for not spending money. Um, it's obviously just where what the plan is, and if you're only really creating a plan now, you're not going to see any benefits of that from three, four years. So I think, unfortunately, if you're to be a realist. There's more dark days ahead um, for, for women's rugby in Ireland. Eddie, one of the things I was writing about this morning as well is the, the competition structures to ultimately prepare Ireland's internationals for a Six Nations championship. And I was running through the way the season mapped out where this year you had a, a sprint finish of an AIL up till Christmas, then the Interpros, and then the, the Celtic Challenge with this combined provinces side. Now, Going forward, David Nusifor is on record as saying as the, the AIL ultimately is probably going to become a development league and an expanded Interpro and Celtic Championship is is what they're looking at doing. But if if the Scottish and Welsh teams you're playing in this Celtic Championship are comprised basically of players who aren't in their international setup, I mean, the bulk of their squads are playing with teams in the Premier 15s in England, ultimately... What purpose is it serving the Irish players if it's not actually bringing them up to speed for the kind of opposition they're they're going to have 
in the in the Six Nations a few weeks later. And if it isn't doing that, what purpose ultimately does it serve? And is it worth actually going through it in the years to come? Yeah, I, I think when we when we start discussing um, strategic plans uh, around, say, take the women's game now in Ireland, which has been through the mill in different ideations and discussions, there's often a, we often talk about it and we mix mix up the discussion. There's two discussions here. One is the long term plan, that's the grassroots game, and as Bernard pointed out, there rugby is a tough sell because the other sports in Ireland have a very strong, like the best Gaelic footballers. Female Gaelic football are only go to Australia and play professionally in the Australian League. You know, soccer is very strong. Um, so it's it's hard to recruit out of those heartlands. You don't have the support of the school structure. You know, girls' rugby in, in, in secondary schools is, is almost non existent. So th- there's challenges there for the long term plans. Like, the, how do they grow the grassroots? And you should park that, or let's talk about that in its totality. And discuss how they're going to grow the game at a grassroots level. And then there's what you just discussed there is the short-term pathways. So the adult players, how do they get from being playing for their AIL club up to you know playing for Ireland? And they may have to pivot away here because like when you're and when you when you don't have that high performance platform in your country, and, and we've seen this in the men's game, people may not make the connection. Like, for example, this, the most successful Argentinian rugby team in modern time was the, the, the team of 2000, the noughties, 2006, five, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. The model that they used you know, almost uniquely was they just exported players into more professional leagues. Like around the 2006, seven period, almost the whole Argentinian team were playing in France. Like the coaches and the Argentinian coaches went to France for their camps. As an as the American coach, that was our model. We didn't have a game in America to support the national team, so we exported players across the globe. You know, and that's been in America. Like Dan Lyle was famous for going to Bath to win the European Cup. Chris Wiles played with 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 Saracens. Todd Clever played Super Rugby. No, the problem for us as Americans was getting enough of them overseas. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I think. Um, help. So. That may be the model. We may need to export our best players into higher leagues overseas. And again, there's limited opportunities. Like England seems to be the place for them to go. Now, that might seem an anathema to developing the game here. But until those players are able to compete at that level, the Irish team is going to struggle against those teams who have those players playing against us. So like you can look at that model and say, maybe that's for the short term, for the next three or four years, to get us back into the mix of the Tier 1 or Tier 2 our best players might have to go and play every weekend in the best league in Europe. But and it's, worked, it's worked for Argentina in the men's game. It's it's worked for other, like, you see the, the, the Polynesian Islands, like, when they get to the World Cup, a lot of their players are professional overseas. So that might seem an anathema to grow in the game, but if, if you want these short-term gains at the top of the game, you may have to do that. And then the discussion is, in the meantime, where do, how do you grow your generic game? The, the women's AIL and their pros are not really at the top of the game. So that's the disconnect that's going to be a problem for, for the RFU. Birch, to, to follow on from Eddie's point there, he's talking about the, you know, exporting. Ultimately, it's about, you know, you might have to export your players. But is the geography of Ireland and England such that Ireland might necessarily even have to do that? Is it possible that they could go 
to the RFU or whoever's running the, the Premier 15s and say, we want to be part of this. We want to bring, you know, two Irish club sides or two Irish super clubs over there and have an Irish representation in this league. Um, make the Premier 15s even bigger on this side of the water as well. And, and hopefully everyone gets richer and fatter off the back of it. Yeah, look, obviously that's that's a possibility. I I, I think very, I, I know I'm I'm aware it's a very very simplistic argument. Yeah, for a start. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wasn't there supposed to be a meeting this week from the RFU um, post Six Nations to explain all the changes and, and what the plan was. So um, I don't know what day that's on, but um, I think that's going to be really interesting because obviously you know the, unfortunately it's very high profile and it's very difficult to, to stomach when you see. The national team struggling like that, but the reality is that you know there needs to be a, a very sound plan in how we're going to change or else we're going to keep having these you know year one of another new coach. Um, so I think you know that's going to be the interesting one, and maybe maybe they are thinking outside the box, and maybe something like that you know has been suggested or is doable. Um, but on, until like Wales, Wales aren't investing a huge amount more than us in the pro women's game but as Eddie you know as Eddie pointed out because of geography a lot of their players play in that competition so naturally they got better quicker than us you know if you think back two years ago we were I think we beat Wales quite easily um, and obviously this year we, we lost quite heavily and both teams kind of went into professionalism at the same time but I think that's the that's the key factor is that their players the majority of their players play in that English Premiership and they're still way behind England and France but they're better than um, Scotland, Ireland, and Italy at the moment, and that's that's going to be the challenge: is getting the 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 level of rugby that our players play week in, week out, up to a higher level. And it's interesting as well. I mean, I, I know this is a problem that we have because we're all banging, banging, or or all the focus is on this poor domestic competition, um, and that's not helping the people who play in it either. You know, when when the narrative is that it's a crap competition, so the sooner we kind of work out what we're going to do. Um, and then get on get on task of actually making it happen. Whether that's uh, you know boosting our own domestic AIL, or whether it's finding opportunities abroad, or or whatever it is, I'm not sure. Um, but I think that's what the RFU they've had a good bit of time now. That that's probably the next step is to is to actually say, look, this is our plan. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll put a pin in this conversation and move on because we are under the under the clock today. Uh, there is, by the way, though, a women in rugby media briefing next Wednesday. Uh, so this day next week. So I imagine there's going to be a lot of things coming out of that and plenty more we'll be discussing here on the podcast. Um, We'll move on to the Champions Cup semi-finals from last weekend. Leinster, um, comfortable winners, I think it's fair to say, against uh, against Toulouse. Eddie, myself and Bert were on the podcast last week and one of the, the main things we were all in agreement on was there's no way it was going to be a repeat of 40-17 last year between Leinster and Toulouse and as we were heading into the clock going into the red at the Aviva Stadium on Saturday, lo and behold, it was 41-17. Yeah, um, I don't think anybody saw it coming because to lose, to be fair to them, have been, you know, have been a real threat in the way they played the quarterfinals. They just look very good. But fortunately for Leinster and unfortunately for Toulouse, Toulouse imploded. It was just a shocking day out. Like there was a litany of things that undid them. Um, some of it was like self-imposed before the kickoff, having a, a 6-2 split on the bench. Now, it, that's not unusual to do that, but it's all great until something goes wrong. 
And then, you know, taking your the best player in the world out of his best position, moving him to 10, taking one of the best 10s in the world and moving up, you know, like, because one injury uh, in the first few minutes of the game and you just, you just deconstructs your, your whole attacking team. And then the notion that that was, that was a disaster. How, how, like, and I know teams do that for reasons that they want some impact off the bench. They want extra forwards, but that's fine until you get a couple of injuries in the backs, a key injury, and suddenly the whole thing unravels. So that was the first thing that, you know, to lose screwed up on that. And then the second thing was, I couldn't believe, well, I suppose you can because they're French, but their discipline was shocking. Like, giving shocking discipline. Like, and it wasn't just the two yellow cards, but they were just giving away penalties like like freebies, like just like giving those sweets at Christmas, you know. Um, they just kept giving stupid. The penalty count at one stage was six or seven, not to nil. And they were wondering why the game was slipping away from. And then the two yellow cards killed the game. Certainly the second yellow card. I think, like, if you, the netty yellow card, which was a bizarre one for, we could talk about it, is that Ramos had just kicked a magnificent 50-22 into the corner. If Toulouse go down there and score, the game is back on. Like, it's it's, a, it's back in the hopper. Yeah. So Netty gets yellow carded, Leinster driving a mall, and the game is over. And then it's just how, by how much now. So, like, the the level of implosion that came from Toulouse was, was shocking, you know, um, between the indiscipline. And then, to be fair, to be fair to Leinster, credit where credit is due. We don't want to get in from Leinster. Like, they scored 28 points on two yellow cards. Like, that's talk about cashing in. You know, like you'd rarely see, like you see yellow cards every week, but you rarely see teams like cashing in like 14 points on every every yellow card. So when you put it all together like that, no wonder the score was so lopsided. You know, and, and that was the disappointment. We all wanted it. We all wanted the nail biter that Leinster were going to win. No question about it. Like it was, it was such going to be a great day out, but it went so early on. I, I just thought after half an hour, this, is going to, this game is going nowhere. No, I have to say that. Until the Netty yellow card, I was saying, no, well, maybe here there's a chance, but Netty kind of killed the day. And that was a bizarre yellow because, like, Van der Fleer charged the rook. Like, most referees tell players, don't do that. But he had two runs at it, and Netty gets yellow carded, and that's the game. So I just, it's kind of a bizarre game from that perspective for me, you know, watching it. Archie, I know you weren't. You thought Nettie was pretty unlucky to get the yellow, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, look, I think it's a tricky one. Obviously, the slow-mo looks really bad because his head comes back up. But I do think there's an element of you have to be able to protect yourself in that position. I mean, you're a sitting duck. You're at the front of the rook. Um, and, you know, if players do charge oh, sorry. you. I'm sorry to cross you, but I, the question I came from is, what was Van der Fleer trying to do charging a rook from 10 metres away twice? You know, like what was Nettie was standing there with his arms out, his head protruding. Like it's a good reaction. To try and protect yourself. So yeah. that was harsh. Like so. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sorry for cutting across you, but I no, 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 no. Yeah, we're agree, agree, intervention agree. to me triggered the whole event. That's that was yeah. weird. Yeah, I agree with you. And and I think the problem is now. I think if if you can get a yellow card on the opposition by doing that, you're going to see more of it. And actually, it can be quite dangerous. It can be quite dangerous. So I don't know. It'll be interesting how how referees pick up on that later on. I think. Uh, I think. Mola Ugamola came with a plan that they needed to have six forwards because Leinster are so fit and they're going to take him on up front. But the problem was, it was the fact that he went with two scrum halves on the bench. Um, and that, that's what killed him. I mean, Retier obviously has played winger before. He actually played winger against Leinster and he scored a win and try against La Rochelle. But he, he is a scrum half by trade. But to have two scrum halves on the bench, then, you know, obviously they have some injuries, but 
that's probably where, and he said afterwards, he said, look, I'm going to be, uh, you know, it's, it's on me. But probably when he didn't have utility back, a proper utility back on the bench, um, he probably should have went back 5-3. And, you know, that was a key key factor in the game. Michelak, at, or not Michelak, um, uh, at the 10, Jesus. Um, Intermac. Intermac, yeah, Intermac, sorry. Intermac, Intermac at, at 13, DuPont at 10. The game was over then, you know, it was... Uh, was over and Leinster were brilliant. Both I couldn't I couldn't have foreseen both semifinals to be as as one sided last Friday. I mean, two ma- amazing performances by Leinster and our show. Well, it's and, interesting, Bernard. Let's see what the reaction now. It's just it was a very solitary lesson to rugby coaches in general. Like, if you want to go six two and roll the dice, <laughs> you need yeah. to be, you need to be, you need to have you need to have thought it through so much. Like, because one injury in the first ten minutes can't unravel your whole. Game, you know, one of the no. But I, 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 I just thought that, uh, the, the yellow card against Ramos is very harsh as well. Like again, this is another debate you can have, maybe for another podcast. But like the referee has discretion on that call. Like if it, it, it the, the the yellow card is for an intentional knock on, right? That's the law, and the referee can decide what is intentional. Now, if you want to change the law, and I think they should probably look at this because it takes all the. The, the if maybe an end out of it is that if you go for intercept, you knock it on it's a yellow card, end off. If you want to do that, do that. But that's not the law as it stands. The law as it stands says an intentional knock on is a yellow card or maybe a penalty try as well. And I thought Ramos tried to intercept it. His first touch, the ball went up in the air. And that was always a good indicator that it wasn't intentional. And it was, I think he was going for the intercept. But I mean, you know, the ref went straight to the yellow, you know. Um, for me, like that was that was a big yellow because again, straight away Leinster cashed in two tries, you know. So I I think there was a bit of they were a bit unlucky as well. I think Toulouse are a bit unlucky. They did plot their own downfall, but I thought the two yellow cards, you know, had a huge influence on the game, and maybe they mightn't have gone that way, you know. Like Wayne Barnes, those calls went Leinster's way. End of story. If those jerseys were reversed, you know, if that was Van der Fleer get yellow carded. Or if that was, you know, Hugo Keenan getting yellow carded, we mightn't be so happy. We mightn't be so happy about it. I always do the. I when that's you get those calls, I always do the jersey reverse. Put the other color jersey on your guy and see if you're going to be happy about it. And I would say if that was two Leinster players went to the bin last Saturday on those occasions and the game. Yeah, to lose are a bit unlucky with those cards, and they were hugely influential in the game. But again. Don't take from the fact that Toulouse dug their own grave in in no certain fashion. Just before we finish up on on Leinster, then Birch, looking at at La Rochelle, 47, 28 winners against Exeter. To be honest, the game wasn't even as close as the as the scoreline yeah. suggests. Are Leinster better equipped to take on La Rochelle in twenty twenty three compared to to last May in twenty twenty two? Yeah, I think they are. I, I think. Um... Our Leinster set piece is better. Um, Leinster's well, I wouldn't compare Leinster to Exeter. I mean, Exeter's defense was was very poor everywhere, wide up the middle around the rook. Now, La Rochelle were were top class, and they have threats everywhere, and 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 they do find your 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 weakness, and they can offload. Uh, it was the most impressive La Rochelle performance of the year, but I, I think Leinster, you know, even having. Like Robbie Henshaw was out. Charles Natai comes in after four months. Jamie Osborne was out, and he's 
he has a big game. If he had to probably stay down longer, he might even be man the match. Um, Jenkins comes off the bench. You know, he's like um, uh, a safety blanket. If, if you are getting beaten up up front, um, he's going to give you some power. And their their areas of Leinster struggled the last two seasons. You know, away to La Rochelle and COVID um, when they lost. Um, they had some injuries early in the game and their bench had no impact. Um, and then last year, you know, at times, I thought La Rochelle got the squeeze on him at mall time and at scrum time. It's certainly the breakdown. So, and I think if you look back, if you look back at Leicester's breakdown at the weekend, um, like it's it's violent. You know what I mean? It's really, really clinical, um, aggressive. They're getting quick rook speed, and I think they, you know, they, had, they had quick ball all year. I think this year when they played the bigger sides. Um, they've been able to keep that um, and Ireland Ireland obviously have as well against like France and England etc so I think Leinster are in a better place I'm sure Irishelle are in a better place I mean the confidence they must have for from having won it last year being back again um, uh, third final in a row some players outstanding players on, on form uh, I mean um, like Satini's is, is class. I mean, you see Dante running water. You know what I mean? If, if, yeah. You know, he, and he, yeah, and obviously, obviously he's injured. But um, Skelton, Aldrete is back to his best. He was class at the weekend. Bougerie. Um, so they are they're formidable tests for Leinster. But home advantage. I, I, it's going to be fascinating who the referee is. You know, I presume it's going to be paper. I, I don't need to give it to Wayne Barnes. Um, again, um, but that he's going to have a massive role in, and say in the game. Yeah, I can't wait for it. Two and a half weeks away. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. Finally, very quickly, Eddie, on, on Leinster before we move to Munster and the, the Ulster Connacht game. Any chance against the Sharks this weekend? You could see them getting caught on the hop or do you fully expect them to be through to a semi-final next week? Yeah, I, I don't I don't see any shock this week for, for Leinster. I mean, they're very good at pivoting away as well. Like, they'll park last weekend and move on, you know. They're very... Um, if you listen to how they... Their their messaging is very strong on that. Like it's they know again, you knowing that you can get caught on the hop is the key to not getting caught in the hop. You know, mm. unless you know that I took a caught in the hop last year or twice. You know, so um, no, I don't see it. I mean, it'll be a massive shock. I mean, every time we talk about Leinster every week, and we say if Leinster lose, it'd be a massive shock. Now, it wouldn't be a massive shock if they lost to La Rochelle. That's a different. That's a different bag of spanners. You know, but. I think certainly this weekend it shouldn't there shouldn't be too much of a speed bump. Again, you never know. Like, I mean, the way the problem at the moment the game is, and this is about across is we all go into these games talking about like how close it'll be or how, how easy it'll be based on 15 against 15. You know, a red card in the first 10 minutes and we lens to go out to 14 minutes, some innocuous ta- clean out or an innocuous tackle, and the ref goes, Yeah, head 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 contact, good luck. And you now Leinster like facing seventy minutes of fourteen men. Now that changes the dynamics, you know. So, but bar something like that happening, um, and even with Leinster, you think maybe they could probably shoulder that and still get through. But bar something like that, like I, I can't see them slipping up at this stage. And I don't think they're going to lose their focus. I think they're 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 very methodical in their focus, and I don't see them even thinking for a second about to lose our La Rochelle next comes next weekend. You know. Yeah. So that's Leinster and Sharks Saturday five p.m. Uh, live on RT2 and RT Player and live commentary on RT Radio 1 as well. Bernard, moving on to, to Munster, away to Glasgow Warriors on Saturday evening. Probably looks like being the most evenly matched game of the weekend. Um, 
Dennis Leamy yesterday, we were doing Munster's media call and um, he gave what I thought was one of the understatements of the century when he said uh, they owed themselves a performance after what happened against Glasgow about five or six weeks ago in Thoman Park. Absolutely. That was a, a shocking reflection of, of where they're at and, and they have bounced back since then in South Africa for sure. I mean, I thought they really rallied to, to get that win against Stormers and, and obviously a um a very good performance and a, a good fight back against the Sharks and a draw. Um yeah, it's going to be really interesting because I think Glasgow are a good side. I think Glasgow are a good side. They were very good at the weekend against uh, the Scarlets away in the in the Challenge Cup semi final. Probably the worst performance in the last three or four months has been that Connacht round the last round of the URC against Connacht where they didn't really didn't really fire, but they were already I suppose home and hose in terms of placement. A lot of players that day, yeah, it wasn't a full team. So, um, you know, I I can understand that. I I think it's a real test for Munster, and it's 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 a game they can they can certainly win. Uh, I think Munster at their best, and particularly when you see the players come back from injury that they have (laughs) at their disposal. Um, Ty Byrne being back fit, they reckon RG Snyman um could be back. Um, obviously bad news for Erlsey, but um, it's. It's going. To, it's an interesting game. On form, you still. I still have to pick Glasgow. To be honest, I. I think Glasgow have, um, a very a much better attack than the Sharks or, um, the Stormers, showed in the last couple of weeks. And um, you, you know, and Eddie's Eddie's, very, has pointed out a few times and against the head and on here. You know, there's still maybe concerns about Munster's defense. So until they shut down a, a very good attacking team like Glasgow. I think you have to be a little bit fearful of that. Yeah, Franco Smith, Eddie, he's done a hell of a job at Glasgow. I remember last year's quarterfinal at the RDS and Glasgow put in against Leinster what was, to be honest, one of the worst performances a professional rugby team has put in for it that I've ever seen. And 11 months down the line, here they are, one defeat in 18 games dating back to, to November and playing some absolutely brilliant rugby as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he's done a he's done a good job in kind of stabilizing the program and taking taking it forward. But I think we we shouldn't forget Nigel Carlin, mm. the attack coach. Yeah, uh, like as Burton has said, that the, the the Glasgow attack is is top notch. Like they will rip you apart if you don't defend well, and that's that's I think Munster's problem next weekend. If Munster defend well next weekend, they'll probably win the game because they'll score points. They'll get into the kill zone. They'll score points, and Munster's attack has developed really well under Mikey Prendergast, but. The, the problem for for monsters when their defense has been at times shocking, and then at other times not so bad because they still can they still shipped a lot of tries down in South Africa. Now they still came out the other end of it because they've scored. So like if I if I was looking at that game next weekend for monster, I'd be saying it starts and big and ends with our defense. We defend Glasgow, which is not an easy thing to do because to be fair to Nigel Carlin. They are they are playing some great rugby, some great option rugby, off off their rolling players. You don't know whether they're going to hit you up or out the back. There's some lovely wrinkles in there, and and you really have to have your defensive headset on. Are you going to get caught? And the way the game's at the moment, you know, you can defend ten rocks, and if you get caught in the eleventh one, it's still a try. You know, the ten good defensive sets before don't count. So that's the big challenge for Monster, and I think, yeah, the. Nigel Carlin has a huge to say in that. He was, you know, he's done a great job with them, and they've bought into his philosophy on attack, and it's working really well for him. So that there is, there is a, there is a risk there for Munster that 
they might come out the wrong side of this if they don't go in and defend really well. And there are doubts around their defence. That's not, you know, Gilda Lilly here. They've had some poor defensive performances. So that's the one thing that worries me. I'm with Birch on this one. Just funny to wrap up on on Munster then, Birch, as well. And in a in a quick point, you, you kind of hinted at there a few minutes ago, Orgis Nyman, Tyg Byrne. This could actually be the first time the two of those players will be on the pitch in Munster jerseys at the same time, which is kind of kind of remarkable considering the the length of time they've both been there at this stage. But it does create a a nice, interesting selection headache potentially for for Graham Roundtree. Would you would you see Ty Byrne potentially in the back row? Yeah, I think he'd slip into the back row. I I think um, he's he's very adept at both positions, and I think. That allows you to get a bit more power um in the in the second row. Now whether they can st- I don't know how whether they start them or bring them off the bench or whether RG's fit to start, but it, it just gives Graham Roundtree um a nice selection headache um of having two players of that quality available. And like the reality is if they fire and once they get through this game, like they're gonna be a far better team with those two at their best. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it changes the whole the whole landscape, and then you have the whole, you know, you know, Ben Healy coming on to close out game. So yeah, once we get through this, they'll 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 obviously um it'll be a very successful end of the season for them and they've got a freebie then in in a semi-final really. But um yeah just the idea of those two playing week in, week out for Munster um is uh you know from an opposition point of view it's certainly a real challenge. So that's 7.35 Saturday evening also live on RT2 and RT player and commentary on RT Radio 1 as well. Um, Ulster and Connacht then Friday evening that's live on 2FM and extended 2FM Friday evening on uh, on the radio Eddie we it's kind of it's kind of on last week's pod we kind of spoke a lot about a lot about Connacht with this matchup so to to put the, the light on on Ulster granted if you want to win this thing chances are you're going to have to beat Leinster in a in a final but a home quarter final granted it's a a bit of a leveller against a you know it's an inter-pro game and you know anything can happen in those but home quarter potential home semi if they can get there and the possibility of catching Leinster a week after a Champions Cup final I don't want to look too far ahead here from an Ulster point of view but on paper at least they're not going to get a better chance at going all the way and winning silverware if you just want to map it out map it out ahead well everything you just said there just puts huge pressure on Ulster which is exactly where they are you know they've they have talked at the start of the season about this been a year for silverware. And um they've had their ups and downs. They had a huge wobble December, January. They just did a typical Ulster cruising along and then had the wheels almost came off. They've reeled it back in again. They went on a very good run. Um I think they, they won their last uh five games um to to put themselves in second on the table. So this is it. Yeah. Now I, I think to be fair to Ulster, if they end up losing a final to Leinster you know, there's no shame in that. Like Leinster are the be- one of the best teams in Europe, if not the best team in Europe, and we can argue that after the 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 the, the championship final. But certainly, this is a big. If Ulster were to fall to Connacht in the quarter final on on the weekend, it would be a catastrophe for them, because like it's just there's no excuses. Like they they've put themselves where they said they would go, and now they have to deliver it. They're at home, home crowd, Friday night. You know, Ravenhill, um, it's an interpro, I get that, but they've played Connacht before in Ravenhill. It's not a newbie, you know. Um, so beat them beat them comfortably there in September. Yeah. No, it's it's a knockout game. So like Connacht will come and throw the kitchen sink at them. If Connacht click, 
in attack, they can be very tricky. You know, they are a very good attack as well. They're really good to watch. But on the balance of probabilities, like you'd have to think this is for Ulster to screw up. And the cost of that for Ulster is is pretty catastrophic because if they go out at this stage of the competition, you have to ask the question, what's all this, what are they at? What's all the talk for? Because again, they'll have, you know, come to the come to the to, to the the crunch game and they'll have bottled it. So I don't I don't think they will. I honestly don't I think they'll get it done. That's what I'm talking about from their perspective. That's why the pressure is so huge on them on Friday night. This is a must-win game in terms of their trajectory of going where they want to go as, as a club, you know. Birch, where are your confidence levels in terms of Ulster at the moment? Uh, I agree with Eddie. I think you have to back them to get it done. Um, I don't think they're in brilliant form. I thought they they struggle at times against Edinburgh. But what's their being their trump card is that line at Mall. Um, and obviously, whether they score directly off the Mall or, the, or it's one of the hookers breaking off, that's been you know their most potent part of their attack. And that's actually surprising because the front five have been criticized and maybe justifiably so um but in that tight area they're actually um very well drilled and very effective and then it's a star-studded backline that haven't really you know um hit the straps this year and their attack looks a little bit one-dimensional um but you just yeah you gotta you gotta fancy them to be good enough with a ravenhill crowd um to get through this but dan mcfarland will be hoping obviously for a win but uh a better performance because you know you need to have more, um, more tricks, uh, or cards, ace cards to play than just a line at mall. Um, when you come up against teams of Leinster's quality, you know, if, if they get through, so um, later on the competition, so yeah, that's for me. I think Ulster will get through, but it's, it's far from a, a certainty. So, Eddie, if I was to, to boil this game down to, to one thing, if if Connacht have poor discipline on Friday night and give Ulster access to a lineup mall in the 22 consistently. Can you see anything other than a, an, an, than an Ulster win? Is it, is it all ultimately down to how Connacht, well, not all, but I mean, if Connacht want to have a chance in this game on Friday night, is discipline the number one thing? Of course it is, yeah. I mean, Connacht, Connacht <clears throat> have to defend very well also. And defence nowadays, it's not just about making tackles and holding the it's it's about discipline. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the third dimension. Like defence is about defensive systems, people making the right decisions, then making good tackles. So good system, good tackles, and the third dimension to defence is discipline. If you give up penalties on D, you end up, you know, five meters from your goal line. Uh, from, from on your heels on the goal line and a lighter a line of five meters out and trying to defend them all. And as Bernard said, they're also that's the one thing this year that's really, you know, kept them in good stead is their mall. So yeah, if if kind of have any chance, their discipline has to be excellent. Their defense has to be solid, and then they can play. And but it's going to be an upset if Connacht win. Not saying it can't happen, but I'd say Ulster can't let it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, given where they are, just can't let this happen. They've got to win it. So that's Ulster and Connacht, Friday, 7.35pm. Live commentary on uh, RT2FM on an extended game on. While Leinster and Sharks and Glasgow against Munster are both Saturday evening kickoffs on RT2 and RT Player and on RT Radio 1 as well. Gents, thanks a million for joining us as usual. And um, we'll speak to you again soon on the RT, RT Rugby podcast. A reminder as well, if you are around Dublin on Sunday, get out to the AIL final. Clontarf against Terenure College, 3 o'clock kickoff. You won't spend a better tenor this year if last year's final is anything to go by. Fellas, thank you. Thanks, Neil.